0: Hello, welcome to CSAP's Science and Policy podcast. I'm Rob Doubleday from the Centre for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge.
1: And I'm Emily So, Professor of Architectural Engineering at Cambridge.
0: This is the final episode in our mini-series, Science, Policy and Climate Resilience, which has been led by Emily over four episodes exploring how we can adapt and live with the impacts of climate change and how we can accelerate climate priorities after the COP26 meeting in Glasgow.
1: This podcast season is brought to you in partnership with the research project, Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for the Humanities and Social Change at the University of Cambridge. So today, for our final episode, we're discussing how our built environment needs to adapt to the impact of climate change, what needs to be done to decarbonise the industry for our urban, rural and coastal environments, and what future development should look like in our race to resilience. We're very pleased to be joined today by Chris Wise, an award-winning designer, senior director at the consulting firm Expedition Engineering, and Peter Fisher, director at the architectural firm Bennett's Associates, both of which I'm pleased to say are certified B-COPs companies verified by B-Lab to meet high standards of social and environmental performance, transparency and accountability. And I'm so pleased that both Chris and Peter are here with us today and giving us their time to talk about how, as an industry, we can do better. So welcome. I'd like to start with you, Peter, and ask you for your reflections on COP26 Given it was held in the UK, there was a lot of attention from the media before and during the meeting, but also from interest groups that perhaps were not traditionally associated with COP. And I wonder how that translated to the built environment, whether there were key commitments and also policy changes that resulted from this meeting. There
0: was obviously a lot of events, particularly as we have um, an Edinburgh office and do a lot of work in Scotland, and have been heavily involved with the UKGBC for many, many years, there were a lot of events that took place around that, particularly Edinburgh Council and uh, Space, a pop-up um, exhibition centre, looked in great deal at how we retrofit historic buildings, which is a particular issue in Edinburgh. And I think that was very interesting. Um, And there were lots of events around the built environment with the UKGBC. But in some respects, I think probably the most exciting thing for me to come out of COP26 was the race to zero, the initiatives from Mark Carney, and the financial drivers that were coming out of that, and particularly commitments to net zero carbon from major financial institutions. And that does begin to continue to really drive quite a lot of real estate and the demands that are placed on real estate and I found that recently has become probably one of the greatest drivers has been how things like the global real estate um, sustainability benchmarking index etc influence the the drivers behind you yeah, the major property developers and so in some senses that's not specifically a built environment thing but it's more of a um how the drivers are set for the built environment and I think that's becoming an increasing motivator for what can at times feel quite optimistic in the larger end of commercial development.
1: And what about your reflections, Chris?
2: I was partly optimistic and partly realistic and a tiny bit pessimistic as a result of COP. And um, (laughs) (laughs) what I was hoping for was some real focused attention on the impact of the built environment on the climate emergency. And really, if you drill down into the detail of what was actually announced, it was, I think, five countries. If you look up the word concrete and COP26, you find out there were five countries made commitments to trying to reduce the emissions from the concrete industry, which is around about 9% of global emissions. And steel industry, ditto, only about five countries actually signed up. As a result of which, we're, you know, that 15 16% of emissions isn't really being tackled explicitly this time round through through COP. So that was a bit disappointing. I mean, the UK was one of the signatories, so... Uh, but in the, in the months since COP, there hasn't been very much action on either of those big bulk materials. So I think we're still waiting. But from the cultural point of view, I think it, it was good, and I agree with Peter, that the levers of the economy and the financial institutions and the funders who are currently still subsidizing fossil fuels to a much greater extent than they are supporting initiatives related to net zero. There was a move where the funders, the big banks, the big um, financial institutions have started to realize that they have a significant responsibility and a significant part to play in trying to change the behavior and the culture of people. And if they change, if the money flow changes, then the built environment industry will also change I think. So that was that gave me some sense of positivity.
1: I I guess I'd like to pick you up on a point that you made, Chris, about the momentum, the loss of momentum, and obviously lots of things have happened since COP26 around the world. We have had to prioritize, but in terms of what the government can do, I mean what what is our status quo at the moment in terms of building regs, codes of practice in the industry, the construction industry in particular, that we should be Focusing on you know, material use you mentioned just now, is there anything else that we should really be paying special attention to and pushing our policymakers and the government to revise and look thoroughly at?
2: Yes, I think that um, through procurement, so mm. central government and local government account for I think it's forty if you, percent. If you also include maintenance, you know forty percent of built environment spend goes and flows through public bodies in the olympics and hs2 at that sort of scale but right down to maintenance of schools and all that sort of thing so there's a as a commissioning body i think the government should be setting an example by requiring in its tender documents for people who want to work on those public projects the, the there should be an obligation to consultants contractors and also awareness on the part of the users to say That they are going to use everything they've got at their disposal to drive down emissions to increase service life you know give give these projects a really long life make them adaptable and uh, make them low in emissions during their use as well and so a lot of those are technological solutions which we already have but if if the government doesn't procure projects with that as a key driver And they may say there are sustainability targets in some of the procurement documents, but the question is whether or not they're actually being properly policed. So I think that, but there is an obligation, I think, to to set an example. And the other thing I think that the government could usefully do is is to look across multiple projects and run a really serious research stream, which says, right, how can we as a government, when we're commissioning projects, drive down carbon, drive down emissions, drive down the use of scarce resources and not do it on an individual project basis where you you tend to look at the notional cost of a project and everything's measured against that, but to look across multiple projects and say, right, what research would be really useful to drive down carbon and emissions and lifetime carbon and lifetime emissions over multiple projects and then take those lessons and feed them back into the gene pool for everybody else to benefit from. So a research program related to to that, I think, is something that the government should be funding. And they will get the return many times over, even just in pure money terms. If they invest a little bit in research, they'll get they'll get a return in efficiencies and reduction in, in resources, which will benefit everyone.
1: And Peter, do you think it's the way we measure or not measure that's the problem in this country? And what are we measuring correctly? Or is it the way we view embodied carbon um, in the industry that's setting us in the wrong direction?
0: Um, I think it is about the way that we measure. And I think one of, the, one of the things building on Chris's point that I think illustrates where it's been successful on operational carbon, and we'll obviously, I'll come back to embodied, but on operational carbon, the Australian Neighbours system, National Australian Building Environmental Rating System, which looks at in-use performance of buildings rather than merely predicting them. So, yeah, it's redone every year, the building's rental level is affected by the outcome and i think it was it was either new, new south wales or victorian government then just said that they wouldn't rent any buildings below a certain standard and that was a huge driver for the market in that part of australia and it led to that becoming an absolutely default standard across so many of the buildings that were you know, being developed, being commissioned, et cetera. So I think it just shows that you know the simple, relatively simple things like just saying the government won't won't rent buildings that are you know below a certain environmental performance is a starting point. I mean, as a society, I wish that We just have a carbon tax, to be honest. I think that would be the simplest thing. We could stop worrying about all manner of policy commitments and initiatives, etc. If there was just a carbon tax that began replacing income tax or something of that ilk, something The Economist has been campaigning for for years. And that would be the most simple thing and just level the playing field. We're unlikely to get that, I suspect. Um, in the short term. But certainly there are are initiatives where some of the major developers now effectively have a shadow carbon price, which is much, much closer to what many people believe an adequate carbon tax should be priced at. So most of the major REITs have an internal shadow carbon price of somewhere between 80 and £100 a tonne of CO2, and that does influence decision-making within those companies. Um, and I think it would be a good idea if the public sector just set the same thing as well you just put some a financial cost on the release of carbon and then the final thing I was going to return to which is something which I think is increasingly understood within perhaps the profession and the the industry of the built environment but is perhaps not so widely understood is the relationship between upfront and embodied carbon and then operational carbon and the fact that the energy or the Uh, Carbon emitted to construct a new building probably outweighs its ongoing operational uh, carbon emissions at least tenfold over its lifetime, which is why the campaign for reuse and retention has got so much traction across the industry now, where we have local authorities that are beginning to make sure that planning applications at least start with a presumption in favour of retention has a huge influence on how you approach whether or not a building can be retained, whether or not it should be retained, and actually begins to affect land values as well. And that's often the the real driver of what is done.
1: This carbon tax initiative or or thinking is very interesting because actually, Chris, you've been talking for years about the fact that within the industry, we are... We are an industry of oversupplying and we design things, we over-design, we use a lot of materials and we really don't think about questioning that. Do you see any change in the industry in the last 10 years on, on what we're doing? Are we using the wrong rules uh, for designing?
2: Uh, <laughs> yes, I have been going on about it for a long time. I think people almost expect they'd switch off some of the time. Yeah, 10 years ago or 12 years ago, I did a talk called Enough is Enough, which was to a, a bunch of engineers pointing, you know, the sort of cultural issues of overdesign out because it was self-evident that engineers, for various reasons, some of them commercial, some of them to do with sleep at night factors, you know, wanting to be ultra safe, were overdesigning things. And it was to a room of relatively high-end engineers and almost all of them ha- ended up with their heads in their hands go oh my god you know are we really really doing this how are we you know that was 10 years ago or 12 years ago i think that we there is a culture change i think in the last two or three years people have realized that engineers have a disproportionate impact on the climate emergency and it, that can be negative negative. and maybe since the start of the industrial revolution arguably for all the benefits that's brought us it's been negative from the point of view of the climate but it can also be positive. And we, you know, a typical structural engineer is responsible for between five and 10,000 tons of carbon emissions through the embodied energy in the projects that they're designing each year. When if you compare that with 10 to 12 tons for an individual carbon footprint, you know, you're 500 times to 1,000 times more influential as an engineer than as any other individual in the UK or around the planet. So, and I think we have to take that responsibility really significantly. And the issue we have, and Peter touched on it in terms of operational carbon, but we cannot see in the buildings and in the structures and the bridges and the stadia that we design, the railway stations, the hospitals, we can't see how hard they're working in terms of the embodied energy. know. We can't look at them and say, that building has been over-designed. And if we could, I'm sure we would be horrified. I think we would go around and say, honestly, for years and years and years, we have been putting twice as much material into these buildings as we actually need. And it's time to stop. And I really think we have the technology, we know how to do it, and we should be doing it as a matter of our own professional ethical duty. So so one of the things, just going back to the thing about what the government could do by way of... uh, helping this situation, is another research stream which would be really, really useful is to upskill the built environment community in being able to assess how hard or how tight, you know, how well designed the structures are, because the structure accounts for a significant part of the embodied energy. We need to be able to hold up a phone to a building and it should glow red if that building is overdesigned you know bright red if it's a 50% overdesigned it should flash red if it's 100% overdesigned and it should go green if it's working nicely in balance with the natural forces that are on it rather than being in response to a bunch of conservative antiquated codes of practice until we can see cause and effect directly like that i don't think we are really going to change and i think as soon as we can see that we will be shocked and embarrassed into changing overnight Really. Of course, what you can do, you can monitor new buildings and new structures, and that does happen from time to time, but of course, those tend to have a bit of a a lens applied to them from the outset. And so people are really, really careful to make sure that they tune everything as much as they can, because they know there's going to be a feedback loop, but on most of our structures, there's no obvious feedback loop, apart from the fact it doesn't fall down. That's too coarse an instrument to, if you're looking for really highly tuned systems. I've often said if, you know, if Usain Bolt was designed by an engineer, he would be, you know, he would be absolutely massive. He would have about four legs rather than two because of two, you know, just in case one of the legs didn't work properly. And he would, he'd be able to do 100 meters in about, you know, take him about a minute because he'd be so heavy and so sluggish, you know. And so we've got to get to the point where we're regarding our buildings like highly tuned athletes
0: and get them working really well. I was reminded of the, um, there was a brilliant exhibition recently at the Design Museum about waste and one of the the most compelling exhibits was where somebody had taken a series of recognisable products like an iPhone or a car or the most illuminating was a vacuum cleaner and a broom and then broken them down into the constituent materials used to make them and they were very, very beautiful sculptures that really made very legible the materials that had gone into those and obviously the broom was a cube of timber and some bristles and a little bit of metal for screwing them together and that was it and it did largely the same job as a vacuum cleaner it was all manner of complex and valuable materials plastics metals etc and it's slightly influenced by that one thing that we have started doing is is trying to visually represent the volume of materials per square meter for a building and it is illuminating stroke slightly shocking when you see just how much material is used to create one square meter of a building and that's one thing we're trying to do more often is try to find ways to visualize that because I think Chris is right it it's very difficult it's very difficult for people actually involved in that world to visualize it let alone people who are not involved in the built environment to do so.
1: What is being part of the B Corp's mean to you both? I mean, it's, it's something that perhaps in the built environment and construction industry, we're quite late in adopting and, and, and looking into. Can I start with you, Chris? What motivated you to go for this accreditation and what has mean to you since getting it? Uh,
2: well, we, so we've been at B Corp for two and a half years. And before that, we, were, we didn't realise but we were behaving as a B Corp. Largely. If you are a benefit corporation, you have basically a triple bottom line rather than a single bottom line. So you are obliged to look to the interests on a co-equal basis of society, the environment, as well as your own stakeholders, shareholders, rather than most limited companies in the UK, for example, who only have to regard the interests, maximize the return for their shareholders. So because you have society and the environment as co-equal with the shareholders, you're obliged to, to think about that on every single project you do. It, it, it's a great way of keeping people's focus. It's easy to make excuses in this world and say it's somebody else's problem and that we can't influence what's going on. But I really think that it's, if you're in a design profession like engineering or architecture, and you are able to really, and, you, and you're good at synthesis, a B Corp is a multidisciplinary activity, being a B Corp. You have to think about things which are not just a single discipline, like structural engineering or uh, architecture. You have to weave in nature. You have to weave in the end users. You have to weave in the people who are not directly part of your project but are still impacted by it. You have to really weave in natural systems that are not part of your project but are still impacted by it. And you have to consider that as at the heart of everything that you do. That's the intention. It's very hard, I have to say, because every time you do that, you come up against um, custom and practice, which is still much more traditional. I mean, we're doing some projects at the moment, quite big master plan projects, which where we we're trying to take wider society and wider environmental systems into account in the project, but the levers that we need to do that don't exist within the setup of the project. You know, they, they tend to be ad hoc, unofficial, and therefore people can take it or leave it. So I think that the B is a movement, it's also a code of behavior. It places obligations on the directors of our practice and and Peter's practice to and every B Corp to follow those rules and for the directors to be held to account if they're not. So it means that the staff who, who join you and who are working with you have society and the environment front and center of everything they do every day because they that's part of the deal when you work for an organization that's a benefit corporation so i think it's a really positive thing there are four and a half thousand or so around the world at the moment i think maybe more now it's increasing every day not very many in the built environment and and the really big players are not b corps you know there is no big contractor there is no big really big multi-services engineering consultancy, uh, you know, that we're still waiting for for the ripples to get up to that level. But it's going to come because people in their corporate social responsibility obligations and other environmental obligations, actually partly building up on COP and everything else and the change of mindset, you're going to find that even the big organizations who are saying it's nothing to do with us, it's it's too difficult. They will, in the end, I think, have to play ball so we're trying to set an example.
0: I'm sure Peter feels the same way. Yeah, I think and the drivers for us were, were very, very similar. You know, we've long reported our impact as best we can using things like the Global Reporting Initiative and science-based targets. And in many respects, it seemed like the next logical step. And if you have been doing those aforementioned things previously, it doesn't make it that difficult to go through the initial process. In many respects, probably the most powerful thing is, as as Chris alluded to, is that you literally have to rewrite the articles of association for the company to move from that focus on profit to profit society and the environment. And that is very, very powerful because, as Chris said, that puts a different emphasis on what the directors of a company are responsible for. The more sort of wider interests that come out of it is, of course, that it's completely across industry, it's across nations. And I think organisations like us probably have a good sense of where we sit within, in our case, an architect's practice in the UK. And we probably know how we compare, but we don't really know where we sit vis-a-vis the globe or different types of organisations. And so there's quite a lot that can be learnt across industries that are immediately outside of our own Professional realm or our industry, and we found that very, very useful. Actually, one other
2: thing is that the so when you become a B Corp, you have to be assessed, and so you have to put forward evidence as to why you are suitable and um, in all of those areas, so including sort of social and environmental impact. And when we got our score, I think we were, we got a score of ninety, which is well, that's fantastic. You know, ninety percent—that's absolutely amazing. It turned out it was out of 200, not out of 100. So we had scored 90 out of 200. That was enough to get us onto the bottom rung of the B Corp ladder. But actually, it shows how much headroom there is potentially in, in terms of the things that we're currently not doing, even though we may feel that we're in the built, you know, amongst built environment companies, we may be a little bit ahead of the game, but There's plenty of headroom in terms of what other people are doing around the world in terms of the example that they're setting and the the techniques they're using. So, the other good thing about B Corps is that it's a learning sharing organization where the B Corps get together frequently, several times a year, and share knowledge and share best practice, which enables people from fashion to influence the built environment, people from the built environment, maybe to influence the food tech industry or vice versa, you know, the people from all sorts of different walks of life. And the tech transfer and the knowledge transfer is, I think, one of the strengths of the whole. It's an active, collaborative, improving organisation, which I think is a very positive thing.
1: And I, I guess my question is how receptive clients, and particularly in the UK of yours, have been to the initiatives that you're both uh, leading in your in your companies you know is it still the dollar sign is it still about as you say peter you know there's the province driven in many respects but are you optimistic about how, where we're heading in the next decade or so in terms of the construction um i think i am
0: um now i may, it may be a slightly self-selecting group of clients and there's always a danger of that quite optimistic bubble but i think the cause for optimism within commercial real estate and that's quite a distinct World at the moment, I say that very advisedly, but within the commercial world in workplace, our experience has been that people, developers, are having to run increasingly quickly, and that there is increasing, um, vast pressure on them to help tenants hit their net zero carbon targets. And it's things such as I think the FTSE is now, I think it's something like 60% of FTSE companies have science based. Um, 2030 net zero carbon targets. And if you take the amount of office space that will be coming free in the next uh, few years by companies that have science-based targets, is something like 30 million square feet in central London that organisations with net zero carbon targets will be looking for new space. Um, there's a lot of anxiety around buildings becoming stranded assets. I think that that it's almost flipped. I mean, for us, off, for a long, long time, You would generally say the agents are the weak link in the chain across property. It wasn't the developers themselves. It was the agents who are constantly trying to up the specification standards. You were saying that more radical solutions wouldn't sell. And if anything, that has totally flipped in the last three years, I'd say. And there is now enormous pressure by agents on owners of buildings to help organizations hit their net zero carbon targets. So on that basis, I'm actually quite optimistic but i think that's yet to filter through into a residential market or the big big problem is the existing building stock and we don't yet have a an international an international or a national almost infrastructure program that treats it with the scale of something like HS2 that's the sort of scale that we need so dealing with the existing stock i think is very challenging but amongst new build or substantial refurbishments um i think things look very positive at the moment, certainly we're as busy as we've been in years with people pushing very, very challenging and ambitious briefs at us.
2: So we work quite a lot in the world of infrastructure, especially trying to embed sustainable, good, sustainable design principles into big infrastructure projects. And the challenge there is that the, so they tend to be funded by the treasury, the treasuries, and they're still commissioned projects on the basis of economic advantage Economic being, usually because it's a political decision, very often in the end tends to be economic over the life of a parliament or maybe the life of a government. So maybe five to 10 years rather than over the life of a project. And when you think that some infrastructure projects are designed with a nominal design life of 120 years, I haven't yet come across a project which really tackles the, you know, the long term infrastructure climate related impacts properly and so however on those big infrastructure projects you get what you are getting is an increased awareness that something has to change and so there are a lot of they tend to be workshops which link together carbon and cost so there's a there are initiatives to say right how can we drive down carbon but the the subtext is we'll drive down carbon as long as at the same time it doesn't increase cost and ideally reduces cost and of course actually if you reduce if you use less resources you can bring down cost and so everybody benefits but it tends to be based on capital cost much less on operational costs on infrastructure which seems a bit crazy because the big infrastructure organisations are owner occupiers effectively they're going to live with the consequences of their design and construction decisions for decades. You would imagine that they would like to you know, invest a little bit more now and get the benefits over many, many years going forward. But that is a much harder thing to shift because, and I think that is partly down to the Treasury rules in terms of assessment of projects and how they are judged, which are fundamentally on operational as on um, CapEx, so capital expenditure rather than operational expenditure. And therefore, it's difficult to get the benefit of an investment upfront if that in the end gives you a reduction in the lifetime carbon or lifetime costs. So, that is a culture change that is happening. People appear to be aware of it, but they're not taking it as seriously. They don't deal with the conclusions. When you, the conclusion staring you in the face, invest a little bit more at the beginning and you will end up over the life of the project spending less emitting less uh, and having a better functioning product that message hasn't got through yet and it needs to
1: and i guess it's a mixture of the behavioral changes communications ways of as peter was saying visualization that would help with that we have to come up with more innovative ways of engaging with the different players in in industry and we've all declared a climate emergency now i fear that the momentum shifts um, sometimes we have a lot of energy and a lot of attention and awareness sometimes you know we dip in certain places because of changes of priority that the life spans of political parties and interests what can we do in terms of the next generation and education i mean this is the area that i I'm involved in and, and, and seeing, actually, I'm enthusiastic about seeing students come up um, in their teenage years, in the first years, really wanting to push the climate agenda. What, in your views, with the last few minutes of this uh, podcast left, are the real things that we can do to, with students, with education, that would prepare them for the challenges that they will face
0: as you know, and I, mean, I, I talked with you and others at the department for five or six years with third-year students. And it was it was quite a difficult subject to embed into a curriculum at that time. And it was often seen, I think, across, you know, this is across the industry. Cambridge is by no means the, the worst place for this, but it was often seen as a as an adjunct to design. It was something that happened to design rather than being something that was fundamentally embedded in it. And I think the more that students can understand the influence that they can have over the environment you know the personal influence and the way in which particularly within architecture I think this is very different for engineering within architecture it's those very initial design thoughts or ideas that are made can hugely influence the outcome of buildings and often I said en- engineering or sustainability is something that is almost something negative that happens to buildings rather than is fundamentally part of them. And if we can get a much more holistic view from an architectural perspective, I think that just helps enormously going forward. So I think what, one thing that would help with that is just an emphasis or an understanding of. The position that we're in the position that society is in and what role the built-in environment has within that so in some respects i think within architecture it's not as much of a technical issue as it might be understood sometimes i think it's actually a cultural issue initially and then you yeah, know is it the peter drucker quote that the culture eats strategy for breakfast and i think it's probably in the built environment it's the same with technology if you get the culture right the technology will follow and probably one other thing is i've i always find it quite hard to use existing buildings and retention and refurb as a teaching tool is much easier to start with a tabula rasa and new build in some ways it's more interesting for people relatively early in their career but i think we're probably moving to a point where we just have to flip that and i'd almost like to see a part where students go through their entire architectural career and only ever look at existing buildings and how they can be reused how they can be purposed repurposed because in part that also gives you many lessons about how you design good new buildings in the way that you can use existing ones.
2: I agree. The premise that the future of this problem is going to be survival, or fall through the cap- capabilities of the students that are coming through university at the moment. And we are in a position as older people to not to dictate to them what should happen, but to listen to what they think is important. And I think part of the... So I'm I'm funded by the Royal Academy of Engineering down at Bath to look at embedding regenerative design in the right across the engineering faculty at Bath, which includes not just architecture and civil engineering, but also mechanical engineering, electrical, electronic, chemical engineering. And because of the massive impact that all of those disciplines have, and what's really clear and I totally agree with you, Peter. It's a cultural question first and a technical question second. The culture is, I think, you can characterize it by saying if you want to be a really good regenerative designer, you need to be a multidisciplinary character. You need to understand and forget about individual disciplines and be a synthesizer first and a discipline specialist second. And then work out how to link specialisms together. But it's, So it's a little bit like an architectural synthesizing role, but I think it goes for you know beyond architecture into other forms of design technological design which of course engineering has lots and lots and lots of as well uh, so i think it's an integrating thing it's a synthesizing thing i think that the other thing that i think is really important is when you are being educated you realize the cultural context that you're working in, which includes money it includes the users And not the people who pay the bills, but the people who are actually going to use the project. And it includes the generations that aren't around at the moment that are coming. And so you have to design for the unknown future to enable it effectively. So I think one of the principles of regenerative design that students, we're trying to include more of this is is to design for a future that you don't know and enable as many possibilities as you can, rather than rule them out to do that by including the people who are investing either money or reputation or hope in the projects themselves, rather than doing it on their behalf. I think it's quite arrogant for people to say, I know what um, the future needs, or I know what society needs. It's actually, we don't know. We we, we need to participate with, with that. And when you then include the environment as well, and the big environmental systems, You then need to have a, 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 and I don't know, I haven't got very far with this one yet, but I think you you need to have a way of engaging with ecosystems at a local scale, a a regional scale and right up to a planetary scale as one of your fundamental design drivers. And that needs to be in the mix as well. In the end, we need a fairly radical reinvention of the, the built environment education process in order to make it multidisciplinary, multifactorial, and to weave in economics, natural systems, Mm -hmm. and things way outside your individual project the impact beyond that. And that those skills don't exist yet and need to be developed. But I think it's in order to do this properly, I think we have to embed those in the in the education.
1: And, and moving beyond the disciplinary boundaries and, and talking Definitely. to lots more people outside of those. Thank you so much, both of you, for being with us today. Thank you to Chris Wise, Senior Director at Expedition Engineering, and to Peter Fisher, Director at Bennett Associates, for being part of the conversation. I've learned a lot and I'm this is going to be a conversation that continues, and I hope that we'll be opening this up further beyond our, the built environment. And as, as Chris was saying, making those unusual alliances across the disciplines of Cops and, and outwards. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. That's been a very interesting conversation. Yes,
2: thank you. It's all the things, of course, that you are triggered by our own conversations. It's great to talk because it makes you think about what you can do next. <laughs>
1: This series on science policy and climate resilience is brought to you in partnership with the research project Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for the Humanities and Social Change at the University of Cambridge.
0: To hear more conversations like this, make sure you follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn.
1: As always, if you have any feedback or ideas you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email inquiries at csap.com.ac.uk.
0: Thank you to producer Jessica Foster and researcher Nick Caustic for the production of this series, and thanks to you for listening. We hope you have a wonderful summer. We'll be back in the autumn, and we hope you'll join us then.